This episode of the Experimental Brewing Podcast is brought to you by Pico Brew, makers of the Zymatic and Pico Brewing Systems. The brewing systems of the future are here now. Discover how easy and rewarding it is to make great beer with Pico Brew. And by Craftmeister and BTF Iota 4. When you absolutely positively need to make sure every surface is clean, bust out the cleaner with professional power and home brewer safety. Make better beer with better chemistry. Choose Craftmeister. And by Brewcraft USA. Need high quality fruit ingredients for your next apricot wheat or blackberry stout? Maybe you're looking to brew a raspberry pills or a blood orange saison. Vintner's Harvest has you covered with eight newly released varieties in their line of fruit purees. Packaged in convenient to use 49 ounce cans, each is packed full of top quality fruit. Vintner's Harvest produces the finest fruit product available to use when creating your own craft brew. Look for any of the 14 Vintner's Harvest Puree varieties wherever Brewcraft USA products are sold. And by NicoBrew.com. NicoBrew.com is your one-stop hop shop where Nico and his kilt take care of all your hop needs with nitrogen flush mylar and only $5 to ship anywhere in the U.S. and with great international rates. If you're a pro brewer or a homebrew shop owner, get a commercial account at pro.nicobrew.com to take full advantage of Nico and his guilt. And by you, our listeners. Go to experimentalbrew.com to help support us. Click on the Patreon link to donate whatever amount you like to the podcast and our charities. Click on the Brew Your Own Magazine link to subscribe to BYO, or click on the AHA link to join the American Homebrewers Association. Part of the proceeds from those will go to help support the podcast. And thanks for your support. Man, I love that uh, welcome to Experimental Brewing with Denny and Drew. I'm Denny Kahn. And I'm Drew Beecham. Together, we're the authors of Experimental Homebrewing, Mad Science in the Pursuit of Great Beer, and the forthcoming Homebrew All-Stars. Now, between the two of us, we have nearly 40 years of homebrewing experience. I'm the guy known for weird beer and strange ideas. And I'm the guy known for questioning the conventional wisdom and coming up with ways to check it out. All right. On today's episode, we'll head to the pub to discuss... Well, we're not going to discuss uh, Anheuser-Busch's uh, takeover of Goose Island's last remaining brew Hooray! Pub. Hooray! Finally! <laughs> but we're going to talk a little bit about uh, some feedback about cans that we've heard from a couple of craft breweries, the Pacific Northwest uh, Homebrewers Conference, the American Homebrewers Conference, uh, a little bit about the unbearable asymmetry of BS in science, and then also we're going to visit my hometown in Florida and learn what they're doing about the craft beer revolution. From there, we're going to go into the lab, and we're going to actually talk about our next experiment, a little bit of olive oil for all you cheap skates. Uh, and then in our extra special segment for the lecturing, lounging part of the, the episode, we're going to be talking to Lou Bryson, uh, editor of the Session Beer Project, about his call for uh, International Session Beer Day. And then we're going to also cover some Session Beer stuff ourselves in a unique idea. I'm really excited to talk to Lou, man. Uh, I have never had a chance to actually meet him and speak with him before, but he had a huge influence on me uh, when I was just starting to brew and uh, get into craft beer. So uh, it's, it's a pretty cool thing that uh, we're going to have him on the show finally. Well, 
I was going to say, uh, just thinking, if you'd never met the man, if you had actually met the man, you'd realize he wears seersucker suits. Your whole image could be different. Uh, you know, I've seen pictures of him, and I've started thinking, maybe I need to start dressing a little classier, you know? Uh, lose a good example. What can I say? There you go. Pinstripes and seersucker. Yeah. So, uh, finally, we're going to uh, close out with our quick tip of the week. Uh, we're going to be skipping the Ask Denny and Drew segment this week because we've got an all-Q&A show coming up next week, so we're saving it all for that. So, I just want to remind you all, uh, you can support us on Patreon uh, by going to our website, www.experimentalbrew.com. Click on the Patreon link there. The money that you contribute uh, goes to fund the experiments uh, of our Igors and ourselves, and also our charity, uh, which is Freedom Service Dogs. I I just love this, man. These people rescue dogs and train them into service dogs for disabled people, especially veterans. And I just... I mean, I, I can hardly think of a better charity. So uh, throw us a few bucks on Patreon to pass along to the pooches. Everybody will support it, and uh, your karma will take a couple notches up. Go dogs. <laughs> Go dogs, right. So uh, any uh, any mail this week to talk about, Drew? Oh, yeah, there, uh, there's a bunch. So one thing, last week, we or last episode, we talked about uh, suggesting an experiment, and we opened up a segment on the website uh, so if you log into the website or just go visit, you can actually come back and suggest an experiment to us. And boy, we're getting a lot of experimental ideas. Apparently, people have a lot of questions about brewing. So that's really great. Uh, we also, speaking of questions about brewing, we're getting more questions for next episode's Q&A Palooza. So if you have a question, feel free to drop a, drop us a line at questions at experimentalbrew.com or reach out to us on Facebook or just about anywhere else that you see Denny and I online. Given the fact that Denny is retired, that means pretty much the whole internet. Yeah, that's right, man. Uh, it's hard not to find me out there someplace. I wanted to come back, and after last episode's results, uh, we talked about uh, Nikki's results and how Nikki's, you know, sort of her data seemed outside the scope of uh, what you would expect because it was so overwhelmingly positive. And she went back and actually went and tested everything out again and did another tasting. And gave us even more feedback, and she's actually said that she has good faith in in the results that she produced, uh, but that she's actually going to rebrew and retry the experiment again, just to see uh, exactly what the hell happens. Uh, I also thought it was really interesting in talking with her that the fact that I think she realized that what dang like all but two of her tasters in her in her tasting runs so far have been women, right? So, right. Yeah. Well, and that's, you know, that's not a bad thing because usually in the beer world, it ends up being all men. And as we all know, women generally have better taste buds. So, uh, very interesting. And I got to really give Nikki props for, uh, doing the experiment over again. That is dedication and uh, a real super Igor attitude. Yeah. That's exactly the sort of thing we want to say. So, uh, I really appreciate the eagerness and I appreciate the, the drive to, Get it as right as we can. Did you say eagerness or egorness? Igor eagerness. I think that works. <laughs> yeah, right. Okay, well, enough of that. We're going to head off to the pub now and uh, have a beer and talk about the beer life.
Michael, Drew, and I are sitting here in the Experimental Brewing Pub at the corner of everywhere and nowhere in your town, USA, having a couple beers and talking about the beer life. Uh, what are you drinking today, Drew? Well, I figured since we're going to talk about olive oil versus aeration, and that all came out of New Belgium, I figured I'd have your favorite beer in the world, Fat Tire. Oh, man, I, I give you props for making the sacrifice. Uh, I'm sitting here drinking a Trumer Pills, one of my favorite beers in the world. Uh, not only is it delicious, but they have such a cool, weird mash uh, method with it that... Uh, you just got to love the beer. Well, so. you got you got to love the attitude of an Austrian brewer to say, hey, you know, we want to expand our, our footprint. And so instead of trying to ship their beer out further, they just could take over an old brewery and turn it into another brewery producing their one style of beer. Well, yeah. Now we're seeing that in reverse with Stone going to Germany, too. You know, yeah. kind of like, uh, you know, it, it must be a good idea. So. So, uh, before we get into the rest of the beer life here, we want to update you on a couple stories that we talked about recently. First uh, is the beer can shortage. Uh, I had a chance to speak with the owner of a local kind of medium size, uh, 10 to 12,000 barrel a year brewery about it and uh, ask him if, if it was affecting them. And it was kind of a yes and no answer. Uh, it was no in the fact that they can get cans less than a truckload at a time. But it was yes in that they have to kind of like pay a premium to do that. He wasn't sure exactly what it was. He thought maybe it was like a, an extra $1,000 or so for a, a partial truckload of cans. So, you know, at least uh, the cans are available. They're out there. Uh, you just kind of have to pay for them. The other thing I wanted to talk about real quick here is the uh, first ever Pacific Northwest Homebrew Conference going on uh, next weekend, March 4th and 5th in Vancouver, Washington. Talked about it last week, and hallelujah, it has sold out. 300 people going to it, and uh, hopefully even bigger next year, but for this year, it is sold out. If you were thinking about it, you're too late, uh, but I'll tell you all about it when I get back from it, and hopefully bring back some really great interviews, too. And speaking of homebrew conferences, uh, an email showed up in my inbox the other day inviting me to register for HomebrewCon. Uh, I initially thought, what the hell is this? Uh, then I realized it was from the AHA. And after kind of like thinking about it a bit more, I realized that they have changed the name of the National Homebrew Conference to HomebrewCon, to which I just have to say, really? Are we like all like 12 years old or something? I mean, that's what it makes it sound like to me. Uh, I'm not sure that we really needed the name change, and if we did, I'm not sure that HomebrewCon is the right name. Uh, admittedly, I'm old and crotchety, and it's a very nitpicky point, but uh, I'd really like to urge the AHA to reconsider that for the future. All right. Well, one, you sound like Grandpa Simpson. Change is bad! Get off my lawn! It's cold, and there are wolves after me. Um... <laughs> But, so, yeah, I mean, look, they, they've been debating the, the changing the name for a while now because, you know, the whole, you know, two NHCs, right? National Homebrewers Conference, National Homebrewers Competition, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, which one, which one gets changed? Uh, they were debating for a while about changing the conference name. And they tried to get everybody to call it HBC, Homebrewers, uh, Homebrewers Conference. But that uh, sort of died. 
and nobody took it. And so, yeah, this year, I think, I guess they decided they wanted to try a new brand and sort of centralize it. So it's all under the same, same thing. And also, uh, I know somebody had asked, well, why not just call it the American homebrewers conference? And I think what their vision was trying to remove something like the AHA's name from it to reduce that sort of, yeah. Oh, this is only for AHA members, or this is only for people who care about the AHA and, you know, really kind of genericize it out to all homebrewers. Um, but the but the AHA when you call it the National Homebrew Conference the AHA isn't in there. Well, yeah, except for then you're still stuck with the problem of the National Homebrewers Competition. So, yeah, that's that's true, and you could call that the International Homebrewers Competition since things are coming in from all over the world now. So I, I don't know, man. It's a small thing. Like I said, it's not so much that I dislike change uh, as I dislike that particular change. Uh, I wish they could have come up with something better that doesn't uh, conjure up images of fat nerds dressed as Spider-Man running around. Well, no, instead it conjures up fat uh, fat nerds running around drinking pints of beer. With homebrew t-shirts, yeah, I know. So. Yeah. Okay, so, six of one, but, half but, a dozen but, of the other. Yeah, but, yes? but here, here's the important part. Whatever, screw the name, you don't like the name, big deal. Come to the conference itself, though, and enjoy the damn party. That is what I got to say, too, man. Uh, forget the name. Uh, whether I like it or not, I'm going to be there. So uh, hope to see a lot of you guys there, too. Uh, well, yeah, we, we, we actually have to go write a presentation or something. I don't know. Oh, that's right. Well, that's okay, man. We'll just do what we always do and just fake our way through. <laughs> yeah, five minutes before the speech. Uh, so, hey, what are we talking about? Yeah, right. Uh, and I want to warn you, I'm thinking about bringing my ukulele, too. So... Uh, Oh, you God. Know, you've been warned. You've been warned. Okay, so uh, all, all that kind of like mindless chatter aside, uh, let's get into some like kind of fun uh, theoretical stuff here. Well, yeah, so uh, we're going to kind of continue on with the science angle because after all, you know, we're two science-y type people. And what are you going to talk about in the pub except for your passions? So we obviously talked about the beer. Now let's talk a little bit of science. Uh, interesting website out there called uh, Quillette, which uh, I got an article sent to me uh, online about uh, science and technology, and it was titled uh, from Brian D. Earp and titled "The Unbearable Asymmetry of Bullshit." Love the name. Uh, yeah. But, but what I thought was really great was we've we've had a couple discussions with people uh, around the internet. People talking about, oh, are these experiments that you're doing are valid? Are they invalid? You guys are doing this wrong. You're horrible human beings, etc., uh, etc. Et and this article really kind of came home and uh, hit it on the head. I'm just going to uh, read the first paragraph uh, out loud because it's something that I so, so, so agree with. So here's what Brian writes. Science and medicine have done a lot for the world. Diseases have been eradicated, rockets have been sent to the moon, and convincing causal explanations have been given for a whole range of formerly inscrutable phenomenon. Notwithstanding recent concerns about sloppy research, small sample sizes, and challenges in replicating major findings, concerns I share and which I have written about at length, I still believe that the scientific method is the best available tool for getting an empirical truth. Or to put it in a slightly different way, if I may paraphrase Winston Churchill's famous remark about democracy, it is perhaps the worst tool, except for all the rest. And he goes on to talk about how science is flawed and scientists are people, etc. Yeah, I mean, I, and especially I think that that uh, that 
last uh, paraphrase of Winston Churchill kind of kind of really puts it in perspective. Uh, yeah, uh, science isn't perfect. Science is always uh, kind of like looking for new things, and that's part of the the good part about science. Uh, maybe not even not so much the conclusions as the the quest for knowledge itself, because that's how you're gonna come up with with new ideas that will take you even farther. Well, and I think even just doing our our silly little experiments here and having people do all this you know, research work and having people question it. I mean, like, I think the biggest thing about it has been having to get over some of the ego aspects. And, and Brian talks a little bit about this, about scientists and ego, uh, because we've obviously been confronted by a lot of people saying, Hey, you guys are doing this wrong. Or what about this? Or what about that? So two things I, I absolutely find is one, this is, this whole process is teaching me to divorce my ego from the actual results that we're getting and people's reactions to them. And also, really opening my mind to just how many how many questions and how many variables there are for people uh, to want us to explore and how every time we think we have one of these experiments sort of designed down to answer a good question with a solid sort of focus there's always additional avenues of exploration yeah really that's what i'm finding real interesting too because i mean we do put a a fair amount of thought into designing these experiments and trying to limit the variables and uh, make them something that people can do and hopefully come up with some sort of semi-valid results and we publish the results and we hear from people saying oh maybe you should have done this and you should have tried it this way and what can we say? But yeah, you're, you're right. Uh, unfortunately, we can't do everything at once. So these are the results we got for this condition. And uh, hopefully they will, uh, they will help you figure out what you're doing in your brewing and go farther. And this is probably a great place to throw in one of my favorite quotes in all the world, which comes from uh, the great philosopher Bertrand Russell, who said that the whole problem with the world is that the fools and fanatics are always so certain of themselves, and wiser people are so full of doubts. And I, I, that's it. It's kind of like the more you know, the less sure you are that you know what you think you know. It's true. Uh, well, I mean, I, and I think the old homebrewers maxim that plays right into that is uh, the only man who is sure of his temperatures is the man with one thermometer. Yeah, that's right. And one more, as long as we're uh, quoting homilies here, when I uh, when I started brewing, there was a guy around named Rob Moline who went by the moniker of Jethro Gump, and uh, his great signature line was, the more I know about beer, the more I know I need to know more about beer. And, man, that is the case about beer or anything else in science. The more you learn the more you know that you have a lot more to learn. Ramen. Yeah. Okay, so we will uh, post a link to this article at experimentalbrew.com. I would really encourage you guys to read it. It's not uh, not all that long, won't take you long, and there's some real interesting and enlightening points to be made. So. Yeah, partic particularly when he goes into the sort of the veneer that people give to science or the veneer of bullshit or respectability that goes around the bullshit in science. And how right. like it's really hard to understand that you can't just take all this at face value and that not everything is a perfect explanation. Yeah, that's true. That's true. All right. So, so hey, we got we got to go to my hometown because for, for once, for once, my hometown is in the news for sciencey beery stuff. All right. So last episode uh, we did an interview with uh, Brian Finstermacher from uh, Tampa, Florida, 
and I revealed to the to the nation that I'm a Floridian by birth. So I actually grew up in a town just outside of Orlando called Apopka, Florida. Uh, Apopka is most famous for having the oldest Masonic Lodge in Florida, being named for an Indian word that means big potato, having a a muck-filled lake that is an EPA site, and until recent times was the indoor foliage capital of the world. In other words, if you bought a fern... Wait, 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 The indoor foliage capital of the world? Yeah, uh, uh, right outside of our big city hall, there's a, a, a giant metal fern... That gave uh, that, that was an homage to the industry that fueled my hometown for a long period of time. If you bought a fern to put inside your house or your fern bar, if you're from the 1970s, more than likely it came from my hometown. Cool. Yeah, until Honduras overtook us. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so, so that was my hometown. Uh, we oh, and I forgot the other claim of fame. We also, until last year, had the longest-serving mayor in the U.S. Uh, our mayor, John Land, had been the mayor of Apopka, Florida, since approximately 1948. So he lost his election wow. last year and then passed away. So we have a new mayor. That's before even I was born. I know. Dinosaurs were still on the earth. All right. Yeah. So here's what's cool. Uh, I would not normally think of my hometown as being uh, a terribly scientific place. Or a terribly beery place. In fact, they only just got Sunday sales of beer this last year. Uh, and even then, my hometown's the kind of place where the Sunday sales of beer aren't allowed to start until noon because you have to respect the church hour. Uh, so I wouldn't expect anything positive and beery to come out of there. Uh, out of there. But just uh, recently, the University of Florida, which has an agricultural extension lab in my hometown announced that they are attempting to research hop varieties that will grow well in the hot, humid, sticky climate of Florida. And they're doing it out of the research lab in my hometown. So they are starting with four varieties. They are growing up a crop this year. They're doing all the usual sort of scientific evaluations and looking for things like resistance to mildew because, again, Florida has a humidity somewhere roughly around 150% relative humidity. Uh, It's very (laughs) jungle-like. And so hops do not typically do very well in that sort of setup. So they are actually going to find varieties that grow well in Florida in a hope to actually sort of help fuel some of the craft beer things going on in the state. Wow, that's amazing, man. I mean, because I know that, you know, there are so many hop diseases like downy mildew and stuff like that, that, you know, are obviously brought on by higher humidity. I know. it, It sounds absolutely crazy to me. Now, of course, me being me, my very next question after reading the article was, Okay, so how do I get my hands on some of these hops? <laughs> so are they actually growing them at this point, or are they just planning to start growing them? No, they're uh, they're growing them th- this season. Wow, cool. So cool. and and the the lab is outside on the outskirts of the town. Uh, my town is actually a fairly big town in terms of area, so the outskirts are way out there. But it is kind of cool to know that the university is doing that, and even weirder that's happening in my hometown. Really? Did they have any info on what particular varieties? Are they varieties we've seen other places, do you know? Or are they something uh, new? Yeah, so I know that when I, in reading the article, I think Cascade was in there, but I don't think there was much uh, specification otherwise. You, you of course, can't if you're going kill to do an- Cascade, man. It, it's like, it, you know, it'll take over the world eventually. Yeah, it is, it is a pretty hardy, uh, hardy uh, crop. And also what's uh, interesting, though, is... 
that the scientists who are involved in this are actually uh, both American and Chinese scientists, because I think it plays into the rising agriculture that they want to do in China to help fuel the Chinese appetite for beer. Interesting. Very interesting. Yeah. Okay. Well, uh, I guess that's uh, about it for science here in the in the pub today. But it's uh, time for science out in the lab. So we're going to finish up our beers, head out to the lab, and talk about our next experiment using olive oil. All right, everybody, welcome to the lab at Casa Verde. Uh, We are here today to kick off another experiment. And this is one that Danny and I have been wanting to do for a good long while. Because, oh, yeah. Well, because to us, this is a perfect example of where homebrewers have taken and run run with something without actually stopping to see whether or not it works. And so, You mean they just made it up out of whole cloth? Well, they didn't make it, out of, make it up out of whole cloth completely. They just took a couple of random parts and added together the homebrewer's sense of frugality and made that up. So... This is a thing that rose up uh, on the internet, uh, I don't know, probably four years, five years ago now. And it was somebody trolling through the the online archives of scientific papers discovered a research paper done by a brewery intern uh, slash brewery scientist by the name of Grady Hull at New Belgium Brewing Company. And Grady did an experiment of see whether or not you could replace oxygenation and aeration of wort with uh, the use of olive oil. Now, I'm going to put in a very uh, big caveat here. What I just said is how everybody interpreted it. Denny's going to get into the actuals here in a moment. Yeah. But homebrewers being homebrewers, they saw a chance to go, wait, wait, I don't have to do oxygen anymore. I can skip over buying those tanks at Home Depot. I don't have to get a, a centered stone that cost me 25 bucks and a valve and worry about sanitizing it. Instead, I can just use a pen drop of olive oil, which I can go buy a liter of for 10 bucks, and it'll last me 900 years. So, of course, a bunch of homebrewers ran away with the idea and reported back, hey, this is fantastic results. I'm getting great uh, great uh, yeast and fermentation, etc., etc., etc. I didn't buy it. So the idea is that the olive oil is supposed to provide the building blocks, the sterols, that yeast used to build strong and flexible walls. Now, normally as homebrewers and brewers, we do that by providing oxygen and allowing the yeast to generate the sterols themselves. So, you know, there's a scientific thought there. If we give sterols to the yeast, they should be able to build their own walls and not require oxygen. So, of course, again, like we said, homebrewers being cheap, ran away with this idea and have been doing this doing this now for five years and the whole time Danny and I have been looking at it going, this can't possibly work. So yeah. when we went to go write experimental homebrewing, Denny actually did something radical. I asked Grady Hall himself <laughs> instead of just making up what I thought would be cool. So, and I want to just quickly say that uh, when I see homebrewers d- talking about this a lot, one of the most common comments I see when you ask them how it worked, they say, well, it didn't hurt. It's like, okay, there's lots of stuff you can do that won't hurt. You can go out in your front yard and you can spin around three times to keep elephants away from your new beer. And it certainly won't hurt. And I bet you, you won't see any elephants either. 
Well, hey, I was going to say I've been I've been able to keep tigers away from my backyard because I hung out a, a wind chime. Yeah, see, there you go. You know, it's it's got to work. Anyway, Drew and I obviously were skeptical of this whole thing, so I uh, actually wrote to Grady to get his take on it. Uh, I started out by uh, asking him uh, the following question. My understanding is that you used olive oil for yeast propagation. Many homebrewers see it as an alternative to aeration after pitching yeast into their wort. Did you look at that at all, or did you use it strictly for storage? Grady's reply was, We never tried using olive oil in propagations. Our tests were centered around using it as a nutrient in yeast storage vessels. Remember those words, guys. Yeast storage vessels. To eliminate the need for aeration at knockout. Uh, Also, we never tried adding the yeast to the wort after pitching. The oil was always added to the yeast in the storage vessel and given plenty of time to mix and be absorbed into the cells prior to pitching. My next question was, could you briefly summarize what you found in terms of how it worked? Grady said, we found a slight increase in esters and a slight improvement in shelf life by using olive oil and not aerating. My final question was, does New Belgium still use olive oil for any part of the process of propagation or brewing? And Grady's reply, we do not currently use olive oil in our yeast storage vessels. The results did not bear out the shelf life improvements we were hoping for and did not justify installing an olive oil dosing and handling system. So the takeaway here is twofold, guys. Number one, They were using it for storage, and it didn't really work very well for that. And number two, no one ever said that it would replace aeration in your wort after pitching your yeast. So um, with that in mind, we're putting together an experiment here where we're going to ask our Igors to, uh, to split a batch of wort and do no aeration on one half and use olive oil on the other half, and then compare the results. Now, admittedly, this is one of those things we were talking about. This experiment could be done differently. You could say, compare normally aerated wort to olive oil. Uh, You know, compare normally aerated wort to unaerated wort to olive oil. And we may get there one of these days, but the first step is to compare wort that has not been aerated to wort that has olive oil put in uh, in place of aeration and compare the results. Uh, I know what I expect to see, but uh, you guys have probably figured it out by now, so I'm just going to keep my mouth shut. Well, and and I'm going to say, I just want to give a, a reason for the particular version of this experimental design that we've done. My contention, and I'm just going to say it because whatever, my contention is that people adding olive oil to their beer are doing absolutely no difference to their beer than if they did absolutely nothing. And part of that reason is because, one, it's incredibly difficult to get the oil to disperse into the solution. It's an incredibly small amount of oil that you're talking about, which is really hard for anybody to actually measure out. We're actually at the point where one of our Igors is stepping up with a micro pipette and is going to actually measure out micro aliquots of oil for everybody to use so that we have an accurate amount. You know, because of that, I don't think you're getting the, the sterols in solution well enough. And if you're pitching a normal pitch of yeast, I don't think your yeasts are going to have enough time to pick up the sterols and synthesize them and use them for their purposes 
before actually kicking off the fermentation. Right. Remember, uh, Grady actually made a point about how they uh, made sure that there was plenty of time for the yeast in contact with the oil. So, it, so it's pretty obvious what uh, what Drew expects the results to be. Uh, that's 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 why we're not doing this experiment ourselves because uh, we're a little bit biased about this. So. Anyway, Igor's, thanks for doing this. We're really looking forward to your results. And uh, yeah. Drew, what if we're wrong? If we're wrong, I will eat my favorite hat. <laughs> uh, you eat the hat. I will just be grateful that uh, that I, someone has corrected me. Oh wait, no, no, no. Here, here we go. If we're if we're wrong, you and I will both have to brew a batch of a fat tire clone and drink it. Okay, okay, that's that's about as much punishment as I can possibly imagine, so uh, no offense, New Belgium, we love you. <laughs> Okie doke, so uh, we're done here in the lab for right now. If you're interested in this experiment, head over to experimentalbrew.com, check it out, get involved if you want to try it yourself. We're going to uh, take a quick break right now, and when we get back, we will be talking with Mr. Lou Bryson about session beer. It's just about time, it's just about time, don't you think it's about time, we talked about beer. All right, we're here today with Lou Bryson, and I can't tell you how excited I am about this. Uh, When I started uh, getting into beer 18 years ago, there wasn't much of an internet scene, and I happened to run across a Usenet discussion group called Rec Food Drink Beer. And lo and behold, there was Lou writing about beer. And, uh, you know, I, I, it was obvious he knew his <laughs> So I started paying <laughs> attention to him. And uh, Lou is actually the man who is responsible for me uh, getting into Belgian beers. So I'll be forever grateful for that, buddy. <laughs> So uh, let me just tell you a little bit about Lou before we get started here today. Uh, Lou has been writing about beer and spirits full-time since 1995. He writes a regular column on American whiskey for Whiskey Advocate, the country's foremost whiskey magazine. He reviews craft whiskeys in every issue. And as a frequent feature writer, he was managing editor of the magazine from 96 through 2015, Damn, man. Good job. <laughs> Lou is also the author of Tasting Whiskey. Uh, he has also written four regional brewery guidebooks, Pennsylvania breweries, New York breweries, Virginia, Maryland, and Delaware breweries, and New Jersey breweries. It takes a lot of drinking research for all that. A lot of travel. Yeah, man. Uh, Lou was selected as the 2008 winner of the Michael Jackson Beer Journalism Award. Uh, and he lives in uh, the Philadelphia area with his wife and two children and two Welsh corgis, which is uh, something he and Drew have in common. He prefers rye whiskey in the summer, bourbon in the winter, and beer anytime. And Lou Bryson, it is a great pleasure to have you with us today. Fun to be here. <laughs> well, we we hope it's going to be fun. <laughs> I was going to say let's uh, so let's start with the important question. Let's talk corgis. Aren't they awesome? <laughs> They're the best. They're the best. The uh, <laughs> the biggest little dog there is. The cl- uh, the clown princes of the dog world. Yeah. I uh, now I I will admit I I, I don't actually uh, have a full blooded corgi. I have a chorgi. 
but she's uh, sitting about uh, six feet to my left, uh, passed out with the tongue fully stuck out. Of course. <laughs> I have two. Right. I, I have a uh, a um, a tricolored girl and a uh, a regular uh, red uh, boy. He's a big one. Though. He's like a forty-four pound. Oh yeah, no, that is big. Uh, yeah, my my little girl is a sixteen pounder. Yeah, yeah, that's more normal. <laughs> <laughs> really, man, I can hardly imagine a forty-four pound corgi. Jeez. Yeah, and the worst thing is he's really a lap dog. He loves getting up in your lap, and he takes all of it. <laughs> God. Well, and, and, and of course, uh, corgis are notorious herders. So at forty-four pounds, he's got to be able to put some weight behind you. Yeah, yeah, he doesn't nip, but he uh. does shove. <laughs> <laughs> So let's talk session. Let's let's talk session beer a little bit here, Lou. And okay. Tell us tell us about this whole session beer day concept. Um, it was something. Well, I've been a kind of championing session beer since uh, I guess about two thousand seven. Um, all grew out of a conversation I had with uh, Bill Kovaleski at Victory Brewing. Um, I was given. Bill crap about all the odd beers that brewers make the you know, the I don't know what like Russian Imperial stouts with uh, Citra hops and Belgian yeast and just doing weird crap and you know <laughs> stuff that seems normal now but <laughs> um, you know all these one-off beers and you got to make it bigger you got to do this and he's like dude, it's your fault. <laughs> it's my fault. He's like, not you. It's beer writers. He says, you guys don't write about, well, you know, when we make our thousandth batch of brown ale. You don't care about that. Nobody cares about that. There's not a story there. So he said, you guys only want to write about the weird stuff. I'm like, you know, he's right. <laughs> so at first I decided I was just going to get more attention for um, the everyday beers. And then I refined that and decided, you know, these beers keep beers keep getting bigger and bigger in craft. I kind of want to get some attention for the smaller beers, the ones that uh, the ones you can sit down and drink. The more I looked into it, the more I learned about the, uh, you know, the the English tradition of session beers and the the Czech tradition of the uh, Desitka, the ten degree and lower beers. Um, the I mean, there's a, a small German tradition of, of much lower alcohol beers, to be honest. Um, most Germans, <laughs> they don't really have a lot of time for anything under 5%. But, um, and, you know, the whole uh, Belgian Lambics and the Toffel beer, there's a variety of uh, cultures out there that accept these lower alcohol beers. And they don't have to be, I mean, <laughs> you could argue that American beer culture already had it all, in all the light beers. But I wanted something with some flavor to it, so I started uh, supporting that and and writing about it. And it, I mean, it picked up immediately, um, mostly with people arguing, but a fair number of people uh, supporting it. And oh, I can't remember if it was three years ago, or four years ago, about oh, it was less than three weeks before the day we picked for it, April seventh. Um, just like you know what, let's just make a session beer day and set on April 7th because it was uh, what they call little repeal day when uh, um, 3-2 beer was made legal uh, in before actual full prohibition was, was repealed. Mm-hmm. 
um, back in 1934, and uh, 34, 33, 33, I can't remember, it doesn't matter. Um, but that was the day we were allowed to have lighter alcohol beer, so I thought that would be a good day for it, and, um, you know, for only having 17 days to put it together, we had we had chatter about it literally around the world. I had this uh, picture somebody took of a, uh, a bar in Parma, Italy, with a Session Beer Project thing posted up on the thing, Session Beer Day. I was like, that's awesome. <laughs> so, um, it's... Uh, it's kind of waxed and waned with uh, the amount of time I've able, been able to put into it and push it, but I'm hoping to do a, uh, we already, we've already started this year, and I'm hoping to get uh, more done this year because I'm uh, I'm freelance again, so. I mean, it is catching on, you know. Um, somebody asked me, um, you know, what, what evidence do you have? I'm like, well, you know, it doesn't completely fit my definition, but Founders All Day IPA. I mean, right. You know, Founders was a big beer brewery, and they did that as a one-off. And within four months, they're like, "We're going year-round with this," and now it's their biggest seller. Yeah, and yeah, and and I'm I'm pretty much uh, a real disbeliever in session IPA. It just you know went an oxymoron. But damn, that they took over the category too. And it's like that's all people think session is now. Yeah, I know. And to tell you the truth, the Founders is one of the few that I've found that I I really do enjoy. Uh, my my personal project for the last year has been developing what I'm calling a, an American mild, which is uh, you know kind of like some of the qualities of an English mild, but using all American ingredients. And okay. It, it ain't easy, man, because it doesn't seem like there's a lot of domestic ingredients that were really designed with that in mind. I'm having I'm having trouble coming up with a beer that actually has flavor to it. Yes, yeah, it's not easy. So session beer day is April seventh. Is that the date, Stu? Yes. Okay. Yes. Great. And I'm actually kind of pleased that it's a weekday because I think it's best at a weekday. Yeah. Well, it makes sense. It's the, the perfect time to have a session. Exactly. You know. Huh. Yeah, save the big beers for the weekend when you can uh, when you can afford to have the couch time. Uh, drink the session beers during the week when you need to be normal. Yeah, moving around. So, how do you define a session beer? I um, I, I to be honest, I came up with a completely arbitrary definition, but I defend that by saying pretty much any definition of session beer is completely arbitrary. <laughs> um, when you get right down to yeah, it, yeah, that's right. I, yeah. Um. So what I did was uh, I decided four and a half percent. Because it was significantly lower than five percent, getting given five percent is about normal. Uh, just judging off, you know, what the biggest selling beers around the world were. Um, so I wanted to make it at least ten percent less. Uh, I wanted a beer that uh, you could drink several of in in you know, in, in uh, what following order, you know, at a, at a setting uh, without getting bored with it or without being overwhelmed by it, because, I mean, there are some uh, real, I mean, like Berliner Weiss, okay, I can do a session with Berliner Weiss, but a lot of people would find that a little rough, having a, a beer that sour, uh, and having four of them, for instance. Um, you know, it's something that you can drink several of, and still be interested in them, and yet not so overwhelming that they take over the conversation. I mean, I... The thing I always envisioned as card playing beer. Oh yeah, yeah, sit around uh, sitting around the table. Well, because I mean that plays into you know sort of the traditional British notion of a session, right? You know, 
every, you know, sitting, sitting around the pub and everybody has to buy a round. So you need to have something that everybody can drink and not fall over. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I mean, you don't want to get me walking and you don't, I, I mean, I for one don't, cause that was where it first came out. We were kind of sitting around a table. Oh my God. This must've been back in like 92, 93. And, uh, and we just kept, I was at John Hansel's house and the guy does, uh, malt advocate or whiskey advocate now. And it was a beer magazine. So he's cracking stuff out of his basement and it's just one fantastic beer after another. And I'm like thinking to myself, I know we have other things to talk about. What we need is some beer that's good, but doesn't grab you by the throat and say, talk about me because I'm so fantastic. I just want a beer that's really good, but not dominant. Right. I don't want to be able to have a well, feeling. Well, I mean, the first time I came across that, I was at uh, Standard Tap in Philadelphia. It's a bar that does only draft and they do uh, only local, local being defined as about 100 miles. And they had the new Yards Philadelphia Pale Ale on. Uh, I'm looking through this list and there were about five beers on there I wanted to try. So I figured, well, you know, the, the Pale Ale is a lower alcohol. I'll have it first. I had five of them. I, it was so good. I just like, <laughs> I'm just going to stick with this. And that's, you know, I love that. And it and it is, it's it's four and a half percent. Yeah, I mean, I don't know about you, man, but I find that the older I get, the less tolerance I have for really strong beers. Uh, yeah. You yeah, know? I do not drink them as often at all anymore. Yeah, there was there was a time when I didn't have anything under 8.5% on tap here, and these days, if it goes over 6, uh, it, it just, you know, is a real rare occasion. Yeah, uh, I'm... I'm- I'm about there with seven. It's about 7% for me. I'm a, I'm a big guy, though. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Yeah, it, doesn't, it doesn't hit me quite as hard. But, yeah, I mean, otherwise, I mean, I still remember something uh, Hugh Sisson at Clipper City said one time. He says, you know, I really like my barley wine, but if I, I don't get to go out that often because I'm always doing promotions and work. If I get to go out and I have two barley wines, I'm done. Right. Yeah. You know, at the end of the evening. Yeah, exactly. Well, you know, and that's that's exactly the way I am. Uh, plus, I live, you know, way, way out of town in the sticks. And if I go into town and drink a couple strong beers, then it makes driving home really difficult, too. Yeah. Uh, why do you think people have been so resistant to, to lower alcohol beers? Or why do you think they haven't caught on as much as some of the, the higher I, I alcohol? I actually find that going away pretty quickly recently, like in the last year and a half. I mean, up till then, I was, you know, like, oh, God, we were getting getting uh, hassled about it all the time. Um, you know, I remember um, there was a local fest in a small town outside of uh, Philly, Kennett Square. It does a really good annual beer festival. It's a fundraiser for the town. And uh, they have a VIP section that's always focused on a type of beer. You know, when you're to be uh, like a double IPA or an Imperial Stout or a Sour or whatever. And, I mean, way ahead, like 2008, 2009, the organizer, friend of mine, comes to me and is like, we're going to do session beer. I'm like, really? <laughs> yeah. So it was all four and a half and under, and some of them ran out, but he was still getting people coming up to him and complaining because they bought a VIP ticket and hadn't really looked at what it was. And they felt that they were getting ripped off. And yeah, it seems, it seems like they're, they're a little bit that macho attitude. Well, you know, I mean, this is one of the things that keeps coming up when I when I keep thinking and writing about session beer. 
So if you feel that way, what exactly, why are you drinking? You know? Yeah, I mean, and I've been seeing a t-shirt around that says something like, there are no strong beers, only weak men. <laughs> it's oh like, I know, it's like, geez, man, I, I, I'm fairly secure in my masculinity. I don't need to wear that shirt. Seriously. Seriously. <laughs> Not to mention if, okay, if that's the way you feel, tell you what, let's sit down and we'll each have four of our, of our beers. <laughs> you can have your four and I'll have my four. Really? And then we'll talk and I'll get you a translator because you'll be talking raccoon. <laughs> <laughs> Well, yeah. no, I mean, to to me, I think uh, uh, I, I just remember there's a, a there had been a great uh, Cascale festival down here in Southern California, uh, down San Diego. Uh-huh. I don't even know if it's still going on now. I think it probably is, but I do remember one year, like, hey, you know, I I was excited because cast beer. You know, I typically think that's going to be session strength. And one year I went and did exactly that. I got a VIP ticket and got a couple of extra hours to go in there. And they they decided, hey, you know, we're going to serve these beers atypically for a beer festival in Imperial Pints. Good, right? Yeah. And and your 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 sample size was a half pint. And then I walked into the beer, beer festival, and the lowest alcohol beer that they had on any of these cask engines was seven percent. Oh my lord! <laughs> See, this is the so, so thing. New England Real Ale Exhibition, Nirax. Old yep, festival yep, yep. going on forever. Great cast beer festival. Tons of session strength stuff. I mean, a lot of really traditional beers, and you can just, you know, go tearing into it, which is, I, <laughs> I think, half the fun. I mean, I remember there was used to be a thing people talked about, uh, you know, the craft drinkers would look down their nose at light beer drinkers and say, you know, you don't really like to drink beer, you just like to pee. And... And I'm looking at that and thinking, okay, these guys are talking about, I'm going to get one of these uh, 12% whatever head bombs, and I'm going to sip it for an hour and a half. And I'm looking at them, and I'm thinking, an hour and a half, I'm going to have at least three beers. We, you know, why don't you just admit you don't really like that <laughs> and get something you want to drink? Oh, my God. Well, I mean, an hour and a half? Seriously? I'll drink a double whiskey faster than that. <laughs> Well, I, I was gonna say, I, I think my problem is I don't have a drinking speed slow enough to deal with that. Yeah. Uh, if I'm if I'm sitting down at the pub and I'm having a pint, uh, I find that I have a pretty fixed rate that that beer glass is coming up and the beer is going down my throat. So, uh, the session beers may just be a good uh, you gotta adjust safety measure. Rather than the speed. <laughs> yeah. So, well, so, that's what, yeah. Um, I, I, you know, there's, there's always, there's, there's some of the people are just like, oh, this uh, session beer thing, it just sounds like an excuse for binge drinking. Well, yeah, if you're doing 7% IPAs. <laughs> right. <laughs> I mean, let's just, I really like drinking beer. I mean, I still remember we had a uh, had a festival here in Philly back in the 90s. We'd get barley wines and, and well, no, mostly it was barley wines back then because we still drank barley wines back then. Um, <laughs> and we got a cask of old nick in from young's in london and you know they tapped it and it was it was a real cask it was live and you know lightly carbonated and it just tasted fantastic and i remember looking at it and thinking to myself geez i wish this was about 3.2 so i could drink it all afternoon well and it's funny because you think about i mean old nick in comparison to a lot of american barley wines is still (laughs) relatively moderate Obviously, you've been promoting the Session Beer Project uh, for uh, this particular year and come back to it, and you have 
all these blog uh, posters out there uh, trading monthly posts and having great fun of it. But now, wh- what are you really hoping to see out of Session Beer Day? Um, honestly, more Session Beers available on tap for me to drink. That's <laughs> this has always been my secret plan. Well, let's let's talk about the choice thing because I thought one in your article that you posted about Session Beer Day, you made a very good point. We referenced it earlier about the sort of the rise of the session IPA that's taken over everything and how part of your call for this year's session beer project is, Hey guys, uh, can we try something other than session IPA? So, uh, when, when did you, when did you think that this uh, whole session IPA thing started and, uh, why is it taken over? Well, I think it's taken over the same reason the IPA is taken over everything else. Uh, IPA is, essentially being used as a marketing term at this point. I mean, you've got red IPA and black IPA. I saw a blue and a green IPA, white IPAs. And it's just, you know, it kind of reminds me, I mean, I know you guys remember this, the Michael Lewis book with Stout. Stout is a dark beer that the brewer calls a stout. And it seems like that's starting to bleed over into IPA. I mean, session IPA on the face of it is ridiculous. Um... And I, I, I partially blame the, uh, the GABF and the, and the judging standards for this because their session beer definition, you know, you, you parse that and you look at what they're actually saying. And it's essentially, uh, you know, like a, a toned down version of another style of beer. It's not, a, you know, it's not a, and, and this is what I've always argued. People talk about like, oh, session beer. You want to make a session beer? I'm like, no, it's like a meta category, okay? It encompasses mild and bitter and taffel beer and the Czech deceitkas of, of various types, uh, the German kinder pills. It, it encompasses uh, Berliner Weiss and, and some Lambics. You know, it's a very wide category of beers. It's not a style at all. And to try and pin it into one little corner, I think, is, is completely missing the point. And to make it, you know, essentially to make session into the into the antithesis of imperial is just a dead. Unfortunately, we are, we, craft beer is doing all the shit that we used to complain about big beer doing 20 years ago. They're using terms that mean nothing for marketing purposes to sell their beer. They're putting shit on the labels that doesn't really mean anything to sell beer. They're, you know, I mean, they're, Jesus, selling us cheaper shit, um, selling us what they think we want, and, and we're buying it. And nobody's really raising a fuss about that. I mean, all that stuff is, is stuff we complained about. I mean, that's part of what this whole thing came out of. And here we are doing it, and it really. Well, I, I feel very. I, I think that's kind of the part of that maturity model of an of an industry, right? You know, yeah, like, yeah. Go, I mean, go go look through history. All those terms, like you said, the stout. You know, it, it, at some point in time, all these terms just become sort of BS marketing things to sell product. Yeah. yeah. And that's part of the that's part of where the industry is now. But um. Yeah, and it's not really so, helping the consumer that much. You know, I mean, I had some guy the other night say so. I was doing, I was actually doing a whiskey tasting and we get to the Q&A section and I said, you know, any question you want, I said, if you want to ask a beer question, we can do that. That's not a problem. And this guy comes up 
and he's like, I'm really embarrassed to ask this question, but I just don't know, and I really need to know. What's the difference between a stout and a porter? And the guy, like, got this really hurt look in his face when I just started laughing my ass off. <laughs> said, well, you know, <laughs> these days, not too fucking much. <laughs> it, you know, it's just been, it's been blurred all the hell. It's like you said earlier, session IPA. It's a pale ale. Come yeah. on. Yeah, exactly. That's, that's Don't my... bullshit me. Yeah. So, 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 I, 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 I remember when... I, I remember when Session IPA first started as the Extra Pale Ale, and then suddenly right. they went, hey, wait, we can call this an IPA. Yeah, then it'll sell more, which it does! It's it's absurd, man. It's, it's strictly marketing, you know? Yes. Yes, which is... Well... Duh. Well, uh, so, uh, sorry. Well, I, no, 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 man. I have, this, I have the same frustration you have no doubt seen on Facebook where I've uh, voiced the same opinion. Yes. So. Um, yes. So, do you have a favorite Session beer? Um... You know, I used to really like the Constant Bluebird, mm-hmm. but unfortunately mm-hmm. it doesn't sell well enough to keep it in, in good condition, at least not that I've found. Um, yeah. I mean, brewed here, uh, I drink the hell out of my local Yards Brawler. Um, Yards has, it's, I mean, you know, and here's the beautiful thing about it. It doesn't say mild on the label anywhere. It doesn't say session on the beer label anywhere. It has the percentage, but it's called brawler for god's sake you know like and i'll tell you what i think it's their i want to say it's their second best seller and nobody ever talks about it being low alcohol they're just like yeah i'm a brawler it's not even hoppy well i mean i'll tell you i'm 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 a huge mild fan like mild is one of my one of one of my jams and i I really wish there was a better way around the fact that you call a beer a mild and it's a oh, death yeah. nail. Like, yeah, <sighs> I mean, I remember there was a friend of mine uh, brewed at a brew pub in upstate New York, and uh, he said, "I really like bitter." He said, I, I, "I can't, I can't call a beer bitter if I if I sell it." He said, "I made one one time and it was really good. I put it on, you know, so and so bitter and didn't sell for for a week and a half. Nothing." He said, "I then." One Friday morning, I went in. I, I changed the name to so and so Amber, and it sold like crazy. <laughs> you know, no difference at all. Just well, and see, and then that uh, that that to me speaks to you know the whole session IP. I think you know we're sitting here uh, complaining about it, but at some point in time, for these businesses, it's like, well, hey, look, if I want to make this beer and I want to sell, I got to call it something that people will buy. Yeah, yeah. It's just unfortunate. So now, let me ask you: if you if you could get any session beer idea out there and get people to adopt it, do you have a specific like perfect vision in your head, or is it just good flavor? No, you know, well, I mean, the, the problem is, like I said, it's kind of a it's kind of a meta category. So, I mean, I actually have several visions in my head. Um, I mean, the thing is, there's um, I don't know if you've heard of them, Notch Brewing. They're mm-hmm. in uh, Massachusetts. Uh, I mean, he's been contract brewing up till now, gypsy brewing, whatever you want to call it, whatever the cool kid term is these days. But he's actually breaking ground on a on a brick and mortar brewery, and he does all session beers. That's all he does, everything is four and a half and under, and it has been awesome. successful enough that he's actually building a brewery, and you know, people are madly excited about it. And he brews, geez, he has uh, saisons and sours and lagers. He's got like actually right now he's got five different lagers going. Um, he's got uh, a, a fantastic 4.0 percent pilsner, um, a variety of of uh, cask English styles. You know, there's just there's all kinds of stuff you can do. But my main 
mean, one of the things you had sent me uh, that uh, list of questions, one of the things about, about yeast, just, you know, it's almost like American brewers were like brewing with just the, the Chico for the longest time. It's just like, oh, we'll just, let's just use this nice workhorse clean yeast type thing, thing. And then all of a sudden, they like grabbed the dial and cranked it the whole way over to wild yeast and bread and bacteria. And they missed all the shit in between. <laughs> you know, there's all these great English ale yeasts that would give all kinds of flavor to session type beers, and and we don't know what to do with them. We don't we don't even think of them. You know. Well, I wonder if some of that is uh, if some of that's a hangover from the Pugsley's days with uh, Ringwood. Oh, that easily could down be. on that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and you know, as far as that goes, I think Ringwood got a bad rap too because if you give it a diacetyl rest. You can get some really good beers out of it. People mm-hmm. don't know what the hell they were doing because, well, you know, there were some weird things going on with, but we won't need to get into that. Um, <laughs> no, no, no. And there's a brew pub down in Baltimore that does all Ringwood, and his beers are just fantastic. And he's like, y- you have to know what to do with it if you don't know what you're doing. Well, yeah, and I'm, I'm going to have to try those beers because uh, I have I have to admit that I have a generally very poor perception of Ringwood. Oh, uh, yeah. Not, not least of which is based on my inability to make a decent beer with it. Okay. <laughs> but, you know, that's probably my Fair. problem, you know? Yeah. Uh, so, right. you know, you've been, you've been working a lot on uh, getting something done with Pennsylvania beer laws and been very vocal about uh, how screwed up you think they are. You, you want to talk about that a little bit? Sure. Um, it's actually the, the whole the whole alcohol code, the liquor code, everything. Uh, I mean, what I've been working on the most is uh, trying to get, we have um, a state monopoly for retail and wholesale on wine and liquor, which is just insane. Uh, the only other state that does it is uh, Utah. The only other country that does it is Sweden. So I'm like, Can I? oh, well, actually, technically Ontario does, but they have uh, some grocery store wine sales. And, but, I mean, that's it. That's about that's about it. And uh, the thing is, it's all tied together because we have uh, private store beer sales, but we've got all these odd laws about them. I mean, the one up front is you have to buy it by the case. Uh, when you go to a, a store, a beer store, which we, again, confusingly called beer distributors, uh, <laughs> the wholesaler is called the... ID, the independent, anyway, it doesn't really matter. It's a beer store, and you have to buy it by the case. And then, if you want to buy a six-pack, you can go to a bar, and you can buy a single, or a six-pack, or a four-pack, or a 12-pack, but if you want to buy more than 12, you have to buy the beers, go outside, come back in, and buy 12 more. Uh, it's just ridiculous. I can't, I can't even imagine that. I know, I know. I mean, I, I actually forgot about it one time we were on vacation, I guess that was probably it. You know, you're on vacation, and you'd think that, well, it's vacation, the rules aren't. And I went into a beer store up in central Pennsylvania. We were up, uh, we went up to uh, ride bike trails. And go in, I get, I'm like, oh, 12-pack of Blanche Stefaner. You know, I get some vice beer for the summer, and then I got a six-pack of uh, Double Bock, too. And I go up, and the guy's like, and he actually says to me, I can ring this 12-pack up, but you're going to have to take it out to your car and come back. I'm sorry. And I'm like, oh, Oh, crap, I forgot. Yeah, okay, all right. And I'm like, what are you doing agreeing to this? It's ridiculous. Oh, man. Thank God yeah, I live so, in Oregon. But, 
even weirder. Now, <laughs> they haven't changed the law, but the Liquor Control Board, in just a, a decision, decided that a case is actually 12 bottles. No matter that the law says that it's 24, and now all of a sudden the beer stores can sell 12 packs. Uh, With no change to the law or nothing. I'm like, so why'd you stop there? <laughs> you know, why not just say it's a six-pack, and who cares? That is just crazy, man. It's so arbitrary. It's insane. There's a there's a clear law in in the Pennsylvania Liquor Code that says you can't sell beer at a at a, a place where they also sell liquid fuels. So no beer sells at gas stations, right? I can mm -hmm. drive up to Easton. It's about an hour and ten minutes from here, and the Interstate Exxon has. I mean, they've got, they got freaking neons in the window. You gotta get a, a growler of Sierra Nevada for God's sake. And that's because well, well, that day the board was like, yeah, sure, go ahead, do that. And that means that it's okay for that one licensee. And another licensee could come in the next week and say, hey, you know, I've got a gas station up there, too, and I'd like to sell beer. And like, no, that's illegal. You can't do that. I insane. Yeah, it is. I, I just can't imagine how they can possibly justify it, or maybe they don't even try. Don't have to. Yeah. My First Amendment. The state <laughs> is allowed to regulate alcohol sales. Oh, Bang, done. Man. And, you know, you can't even pay in the court because <laughs> they always win. <laughs> it's just nuts. And the legislature, meanwhile, the legislature has been dealing with this whole case law thing forever, and they don't want to change it because all the bars like being only the only place you can buy a six-pack. And the only place where, the only way supermarkets are allowed to sell beer in Pennsylvania is if they buy a bar license and then put in a cafe. And you have to check out the beer separate on a different cash register than the one in the main store. And then you can buy beer. But, you know, they don't want, they don't want their six-pack monopoly taken away. So they lean on the legislators. So the legislators haven't done anything. And when this 12-pack thing came through, I mean, you could just hear them all going, whew, thank God, we don't have to deal with that again for a while. It's just nuts. God, I just can't imagine that. I, uh... Yeah, I know. I know. That's how I feel. <laughs> yeah, except you have to live there. I'll, I'll, I'll tell well, you though. I, I also live about twenty minutes from New Jersey. Oh, there you go. Yeah, uh, it, it it did work in my favor once. I uh, I have a brother who lives in Philadelphia, and uh, I was going to visit him, and he asked me, uh, you know, what kind of beer he should get for me. I said, Well, yeah, I'm a big Golden Monkey fan. So uh, I, I walk into his house, and he's got a case of Golden Monkey <laughs> sitting there for. I'm going to be there three days, you know. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's a lot of golden monkey for three days to be fair it, it has worked in our favor in one way we have a great draft beer scene because everybody wants to get draft because they want to try it so right you know everybody goes out to the bars gets all kinds of different draft we have a um, there's a, a a law that they enforce fairly strictly that says all the lines have to be cleaned at least once a week and you have to keep a log of it uh. i know right yeah. so is it worth it? I'm not sure. <laughs> Honestly, I'd kind of like to have open beer sales and that if, uh, if I had a choice. Greedy, greedy, greedy. I know. I know. I'm such a bad man. I still remember I was well, well, hey. well, well, like 12 years ago, and we're standing, we're in the keg room in the cooler, and the guy reaches down and uh, pulls the little cover off the tap. He's like, you know. If I pissed in there and put the cat back in and sent it out, I wouldn't be breaking the law. If a farmer did that to a can of milk, they'd put him in jail. <laughs> you know what? They ought to. 
It's just mm-hmm. unreal. Well, and you you write about uh, all your fun times and adventures with the PLCC on what uh, abolish the PLCC. Yeah, why the why the PLCB should be abolished. Yeah, yeah. I'm I'm like right. barely running three blogs. I'm trying to keep it together. Uh, you know what? And and you should definitely uh, get us uh, the addresses of all your blogs and stuff, oh, well, and we will sure. put we'll put them on the website so people can check them out because. I I love the way you write, man. It, it's it, it's really <laughs> engrossing, you. you know. I I totally enjoy it. So, uh, okay. So here's here's the question that we ask everybody every time, and you're not getting away from it either. What's your favorite curse word? Oh, I'm glad you let me know about this because I was able to think about it, and I realized that my favorite curse word is bullshit. Oh, because it's just it's how I feel about a lot of things. A lot of people say. <laughs> We we have an outlier. You were the first one to not go for f- No, really? Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah, you were the first person. So I would say that makes you a real individual. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. 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 Well, Apparently a lot of brewers out there are really, really satisfied by the word. Oddly enough, used to say sh- f- <laughs> I still can't believe, but... <laughs> I've been known to use that one too. <laughs> well, it's your heritage, you know. That's right. That's right. <laughs> All right, Lou. Before we, before we get ready to to leave you be back to the wilds of Pennsylvania and your strange liquor laws, uh, are there any other uh, session type thoughts that you feel like uh, people should know or think about? Uh, ask for it. You know, I mean, I went to pick my son up at college one year, and I was it was about. It was a five-hour drive home, and I picked him up, and I said, you know, let's get some dinner, and we'll hit the road. And I wanted to have just one beer with dinner. And I go into uh, the Sunset Grill in Alston, Massachusetts, just outside of Boston, mm-hmm. and I forget how many taps they had at the time. It was like 110. And yep. it was a Monday, so they'd been hit pretty hard in the weekend. They hadn't filled up all the taps again yet, and I'm going through, and I'm checking all the ones that are 5% or less. I'm like, do you have this? He's like, I don't know, we're out of that. I said, do you have this? I don't know, we're out of that. We got through this about five times, and I finally said to the guy, I'm like, you know, you really ought to have more of a selection of stuff on that's that's lower alcohol. And he looks right at me and says, that doesn't sell. I'm like, are you hearing yourself? (laughs) Every one of them is gone because it sold out over the weekend. (laughs) And this is, you know, some people get this, but I mean, so many... So many brew pub owners don't get it. You, I mean, you sell the pints for the same amount of money, but they drink more of it. And and to be fair, I mean, I've run into this argument, the whole thing. Well, it it you know it costs less because the materials are less. Do you? I mean, first off, the materials cost is what twenty percent of a, a pint of commercial right. beer. You know, I mean, we I remember we had this we had a discussion <laughs> session about this, like a an industry only discussion session about this at Nirax one year. And, and the guys that actually make session beer are sitting there a nickel a pint. Maybe. Maybe. And, I mean, you know, you get that much variation between, I don't know, between an IPA and, and a, a big double. So mm-hmm. it's not really an issue. But on the other hand, these beers are going to cost you about the same. You're going to sell them for about the same. You probably go a little bit more on the bigger beers because you can get it. But you're going to sell for session beers for every three regular beers you get you sell you know there's money to be made there that's a really good point 
Yeah, that's a that's a great point, man. Uh, if it's if it's strictly about the profits, then obviously, uh, yeah, you know, you're going to be selling more low alcohol beer than than you are ten percent beer. Yeah, and my God, if it gets to be hot weather, or you've got a band, or you've got, you know, anything that that attracts people. I mean, during sports games, geez, you know, when the TV's on, guys just put them down, and if you've got one that you they can put down. They'll do it. They'll gravitate to it. You won't have to tell them. Well, Lou Bryson, thank you so much for joining us today, man. It has sure, just—it has been a pleasure. It has been a real kick, and uh, maybe maybe we can do it again someday and uh, talk whiskey or something like that. <laughs> hey, you never know. Or, or maybe we maybe we can talk more corgis. To be honest, all we're going to do is say they're really cool, and say, "Yeah, they're damn great. I love those." <laughs> yeah, well, keep your eyes open for Drew's corgis on the beach pictures. Uh, he loves to post those. <laughs> <laughs> All right, man. Thank you once again. It has been a real trip. Uh, everybody, this has been Lou Bryson talking about the Session Beer Project. Don't forget, April 7th is Session Beer Day. Start brewing them now so you'll be ready. See you later, Lou. Thanks, guys. See you. See you. Bye. All right, so that was our talk with uh, Lou. And obviously, as you can tell, we had great fun with Lou. Lou is a, uh, uh, well, I think a hero of ours is one way of putting it. And I think we... Well, and I think we both agree with his mission about uh, increased session beer usage. So, given that uh, this episode is going to drop here in, uh, what is this, early March? Late February? Anyway, it's going to drop a full month ahead of the session beer day. That gives you, the home brewer, plenty of time to put your own session beers on tap. So, why uh, why do we want to talk about the, the session beer? Uh, because... We both really strongly do believe in the idea that it's a good thing to have a beer that you can sit there and quaff multiple pints of without feeling you know, like you're about to get leadheaded. And let's, frank, uh, let's face it, we are about to hit party season, right? Everybody's going to start gearing up for those summer barbecues, your, your grill sessions, hanging out with friends. Uh, your friends may be stout and sturdy fellows, but at some point in time downing pints of 8% uh, IPA, double IPA, it's going to kind of kill your party. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Yeah, you know, and, and maybe some of you have heard me talk in the past about my quest to create uh, what I call an American mild, 4.5% uh, beer using all American ingredients. And not having a lot of luck with that so far, I'm about ready to, to jump back into the development part. But Lou gave me a great idea when he started talking about bitters, because bitters can be low-alcohol beers, too. And I think that maybe if I start heading in that direction, it's going to be closer to what I have in my head. Uh, I'm still going to have to find those ingredients to, to give me the flavor without the alcohol. But, uh, that, that, you know, the, the chase is part of the fun. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and, I mean, I think for me... You know, I, I have two things that uh, that I brew all the time as my session beers. I do usually have a mild around because I like uh, having a mild. And I have I have two. I have one that, that I always talk about, which is my uh, what I call my CDJK mild. And if you do a search for that online, you will totally find that uh, recipe everywhere. And that is a traditional English dark mild. And it is... 3.2, depending upon uh, which particular version it is that we're talking about here. Like I said, I talk about the, the Dark Mild a lot, and you can find that online. But 
realistically, part of the problem with the dark mild is that uh, one, it's called mild, and that turns people off. And uh, some people don't don't dig on the dark thing. And during the summer, a lot of people really like to have something that's pale colored. So I started to explore around with an idea that I'd originally thought of as basically a pale mild or an, uh, what I thought was traditionally an AK mild. But it seems that that is a confused term with a lot of historical uh, misgivings of various people using it for different marketing reasons. So whether or not a pale mild as a historical thing exist or existed uh, can't say, but you know what? I've made a pale mild and I really love to do things with oats. Uh, don't know why, uh, maybe it's the partial Scottish heritage, but I really do like to have, uh, an oat mild around a lot. And I'd always do that as a pale beer. So for like five and a half gallons for an oat mild, I use six pounds of Maris Otter, two pounds of uh, Thomas Fawcett's oat malt, and a half a pound of British Crystal 55, a medium crystal. And that gives me five and a half gallons of beer at about 1036. And then I only use like a quarter of an ounce of Magnum as a bittering addition. And that's like for a total of 14 IBUs. But the beer comes out at 3.5%, which is solidly, solidly session. And with a little bit of light carbonation, I don't go like super American pale ale carbonation, like two and a half volumes. I go more like two. What you get out of the glass is this really sort of wonderful, slightly sweet, slightly viscous feeling beer from the oats that has just a little bit of hop character to it. And depending upon the yeast strain that you use, and I really like, there's a White Labs Platinum strain called SXAL, uh, WLP022. I really love that one. Or I use Yeast's Tim's Valley, which is 1275. But depending upon the yeast that you use, you can get a lot of different expression of characters. And that is really one of my go-to summertime beers that isn't boring. Wow. That's uh, that's great, man. I mean, just just listening to you talk uh, is giving me more ideas about where to go with mine. Uh, body and mouthfeel are a couple things I was lacking, and uh, so maybe maybe I'll go uh, go the oat route, toss in a little bit of those. Uh, yeast wise, uh, I'm I'm pretty much stuck on using uh, fourteen fifty. I. I think that the mouthfeel will be real complimentary, and I may depart from my usual uh, regime with that and uh, maybe run it at a higher temperature and see what happens, you know? Uh, well, yeah. I, th- I think you have to you have to use uh, 1450, right? Isn't it by law if you have a yeast strain named yeah, after well, it? I, yeah, it, 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 that's true. I, I would be looking at federal agents showing up if I didn't use it. So, uh, you know, that's, that's pretty much the constraint that I have to live with. But... Uh, <laughs> but I think it's going to be a good yeast for that style. But I think that I just need to start playing around because I'm going into uncharted territory and I need to start thinking outside the box and trying some new things. So Well, and, and I uh, think adjuncts adjuncts are really good in these session beers because you are right. I mean, if you try and do just you know, a flat malt beer without anything special in it, I, I do tend to find that those uh, suffer. Uh, but... Let's talk a couple of the advantages of doing session beers, uh, at least to my mind. They're super quick to make. I mean, not necessarily on the the brew day, because the brew day doesn't go any faster. But they're super quick in terms of turnaround time. Now, mm-hmm. you guys know uh, know that I've put together uh, an article a little while back about express brewing, about being able to turn a beer around in five to ten days. And one of the big keys about that is usually the session beers work best for that. Uh, so easy turnaround time. 
it's easy to produce a lot of beer. Let's say, for instance, you're scaled for 10 gallons. Now, you probably have scaled your system to do 10 gallons at a medium or heavy gravity. If you can make 10 gallons of beer at 1065, you can make 20 gallons of beer at 1032 just by doing dilution. And it works It works like a charm. I do it all the time. And what's really great about it is if you're doing one of these session beers like my Pale Oat Mild or, say, a Table Saison, which I also love to make, you can turn around, you can do this dilution trick, you can produce more beer, and then if you take a cue from some of my other beers I've done where I do post-fermentation flavorings or post-split flavorings, you can very easily for a party or a festival or for just your own drinking needs, turn around and in a single brew session produce two to four distinct beers, all of sessionable strength, all with something interesting going on, and all with a reason to keep drinking and not get bored. Wow. And that's the, as you say, as we're getting into party season, that's a really, really good idea. So we want to hear from you guys. Uh, you got a favorite session beer, uh, and we'll say that's a beer that's four and a half percent alcohol by volume or less. You got a favorite session beer recipe. Let us know. Send the stuff in. While we'll talk about it on the show, and maybe you can help somebody else uh, like me who's trying to develop their own. Well, and you know what? I'm going to challenge our, our audience because I think our audience is made up of very smart people, very talented brewers who can you know really turn a challenge on a dime. Lou says session beer is 4.5%. By English tradition, which of course is where a lot of this nonsense comes from, a session beer is under 4%. I want to see the most interesting beers you guys can think to make that are under 4% alcohol. And if you can get them down to 3.2, 3.0, even better. That's wow. the challenge for you guys. All right. All right. Drew has put out a challenge. Who's going to take it up? We're going to take a quick break. We'll be back. All right, now, uh, everybody, this is normally the part of the episode where we would have a Q&A segment, but as we've reminded you at the beginning of the episode and for the last couple of episodes, uh, next episode is going to be our all Q&A palooza. So no Q&A this week, but remember, get your questions in to questions at experimentalbrew.com or Facebook or anywhere else that you see us. All right, Denny, let's get a quick tip. All righty. This quick comes from the user named Lindak on the AHA forum who says, I keep a brew day toolbox. It contains all the smaller individual pieces and parts I need to brew and get fermentation going. Airlocks, stoppers, hydrometer, thermometer, whirl flock, gypsum, lactic acid, hot bags, etc. I have a slot for everything and when cleaning up, I make sure everything is stocked in its place for my next brew. It saves me a lot of trips up and down the stairs. And boy, great idea there, Lindak. That totally appeals to my sense of organization. Uh, I have a, I don't use a toolbox, but I have a dedicated uh, cabinet out in my brewery, and everything always comes out and goes back into exactly the same place. Sure makes it a lot easier. Well, and I'm, I'm going to actually take that one step further because I'm apparently insane. I have multiple tool toolkits. But I have them scattered around the brewery. I have them all set up next to the places where I'm likely to use them. 
Right so on. I've got my I've got a toolbox next to the brew stand that it contains all the all the regular tools, including my refractometer and my wrenches and all that. I have the water salts in another toolbox just below that. I have all the fermentation gear next to where my fermenters are. I have all the small draft parts next to where my kegs are stored. Like so, I think I have like nine of these things. Oh, that's yeah. Well, I, and in that case, that's a good idea. Uh, I kind of do everything in the same area of my brewery, so I can just kind of keep them all in one cabinet and reach over there. Actually, I've got three cabinets, but they're all in the same place. So, well, but you've you've been in my brewery. I mean, it's not uh, it's not yeah. like there's you know more than ten steps between any two locations. I just happen to be so weirdly <laughs> lazy, or and or obsessive that. I like to have them within hand's reach, I guess. Right. Okay, so anyway, the takeaway from the quick tip is get yourself a toolbox, get all your small brewing things organized, and uh, it'll save you some time and hassle when doing it. So every week we like to uh, talk about something other than beer because we do have other slight outside interests. Uh, Drew discovered something really cool he's going to tell you about. Yeah, all right, so this is a super quick one. But uh, one of my great musical loves is actually swing music. So odds are good that if I'm not listening to a podcast while I'm doing my hour and a half to three hour commute every day, I'll have on a 1940s music station and I'll be listening to the classics like uh, Glenn Miller or my grandmother's personal favorite, uh, Benny Goodman. Uh, Just the other day, I stumbled onto a fantastic YouTube find. Uh, They do exist. It was a clip of Sammy Davis's 1960s variety TV show probably from around 1965 where he had both the Andrews sisters and the Supremes on the stage at the same time. And he had them perform snippets of each other's hit songs. So, so the quality of the video is terrible, fuzzy black and white with just bad picture, but you kind of get enough of the point to understand what's going on on stage. But the audio is freaking killer. Uh, the, it was just the thing about this whole, uh, whole clip is just sort of the old fashioned cheesy goodness of these 1960s variety shows. And it just rings right through on the audio track and the Supremes who at this time were kind of on the rise to the pinnacle of their vocal performance power really kill the Andrew sisters songs and the sisters, you know, who at this point in time were sort of in you know, sort of nostalgia act mode at that point, we're no slouches either. So we'll put a link to the YouTube video in the podcast post, but really do yourself a favor and go and watch this clip uh, for all of its old time silliness and the performance performing prowess of both the Andrew sisters and the Supremes. Yeah, I think I think for me that the high point was uh, the Supremes doing uh, Dimir Bis Duchesne. I, I mean, I just that song drives me crazy anyway. I just absolutely love it. And they did a killer version of it. And I want to promise everybody out there, you will not soon be hearing a ukulele version of that from me. Well, can I just say how how amazingly cool would it have been if you could have gotten the Supremes doing like a album of like rearranged versions of all those 1940s classics? Yeah, really. Definitely very cool. Definitely very cool. So, all right, there you go. There's your there's your something other than beer. So uh, we have like two questions of the week this week. The first question is, you ready for some truth about olive oil? Does it actually replace aeration in beer? Does it do nothing at all? Uh, Do you want to get involved? 
check it out. Yeah, I'm just curious to see whether or not this means the Spanish, the Greeks, and the Italians could actually rule the beer scene. <laughs> really? And what's our other question, Drew? Well, the other question, of course, is given that our, our big discussion with Lou and all the stuff coming up about session beers, are you game to do some session beer brewing? It is coming to, it, it is coming up on summer relatively quick. It's coming up on party season, which means that we all need beer that we can just enjoy without getting hammered. Or do you not care? Do you just rather have those big, massive flavor bombs and only want to focus on doing big, unique, and strange things? Let us know. And if you have great ideas for session beers, please uh, drop us a line. Give us some ideas because, uh, hey, we're going to talk about some more because I personally think session beer is a good thing for people to have to do. Yeah, I mean, that's a good point. If you've got a great session beer recipe, send it in. uh, Let us check it out. Share it with other people. uh, Make it ourselves. And uh, this has encouraged me to get back to working on my American Mild project where I'm trying to uh, emulate the overall characteristics of a British Mild but using all American ingredients. So that's that's what I'm going to do. Well, Drew, what's the recap this week? Oh, boy, what did we talk about? We talked about, well, not Goose Island. Uh, we did talk <laughs> not about, Goose Island. Yeah, we talked about our Q&A episode that's coming up uh, next time. We talked about cans. We talked about two different homebrew conferences and whether or not you like a name. We talked about the bullshit of science. We talked about science in my hometown that's actually about beer. Weirds me out. <laughs> we talked about olive oil versus aeration and whether or not it's going to make a difference and how exactly we're going to try and find out. And then, of course, we had a great conversation with Lou Bryson all about the Session Beer Project uh, before coming back and giving you a quick tip and skipping over our Q&A this time. Yep, that's uh, that sounds like about it to me. So thank you all for listening to Experimental Brewing. You can catch all of our latest adventures and writings at our website. That's experimentalbrew.com. And you can follow us on Twitter. We're at Experimental Brew. We're on Facebook. We may be other places. I don't know. Uh, if you have, uh, questions for us or you want to suggest topics or recipes or experiments or just rant and rave, you can email us at podcast at experimentalbrew.com or you can email us individually. I'm Denny at experimentalbrew.com. He's Drew at experimentalbrew.com. We'll be back with another episode in a couple weeks or so. Until then, remember to brew experimentally. Or brew wacky. And we'll see you on the next episode of Experimental Brewing. Experimental Brewing.